You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined virtually today by H. Keith Melton, an internationally recognized intelligence historian and authority on espionage technology. Keith is the author of Ultimate Spy, Inside the Secret World of Espionage, and co-author of Spycraft, The Secret History of the CIA's Spy Tech from Communism to Al-Qaeda. And he wrote that book with Bob Wallace. And Bob Wallace is joining us today as well. Bob is the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency's Office of Technical Service. He's also a founder of the Artemis Consulting Group and contributor to the CIA's Center for the Study of Intelligence. Bob has written five books with Keith Melton, including Spy Sites of Washington, D.C. I should add that Bob is on Spy Museum's advisory board. Keith is on Spy Museum's governing board. Keith also has notably donated over 5,000 artifacts to the International Spy Museum. So gentlemen, let's have a conversation about your recent book titled Spy Sites of New York City. So you guys have authored several books together, but I have to ask you right up front, why did you decide to put together this book? This is not your first Spy Sites book. You've done Spy Sites in DC, and clearly a lot of work went into that. And now you've added The City That Never Sleeps. Bob, I, I, before we go any further, I wanna ask you, which one is your favorite? I wanna put you on the spot. Chris, uh, thank you for inviting us to be part of this program. I would refer, I believe, to my mother in answering your question. Uh, my mother had 14 nephews, and uh, each time that uh, she would introduce one of her nephews to somebody else, she would say, this is my favorite nephew, Dennis. This is my favorite nephew, Sean. 
this is my favorite nephew, add, add the name. And I'm sort of like this, like that with these two books. You know, this is my favorite book. Today, we're talking about New York. It's absolutely my favorite book. If we do an interview about Washington tomorrow, it will absolutely be my favorite book. And that is no discredit to either of them. I would add uh, uh, very quickly though, that it's also not unlike what's my favorite artifact in the spy museum. And so it's my favorite artifact, the miniature camera, is it the rat concealment? Is it the umbrella with the poison dart? Hey, you know, the answer is yes. <laughs> Keith, how about you? Well, I, I like Bob's analogy. I, I'm reminded, I believe, the kind of the allegorical reply that Willie Sutton, the infamous bank robber, once said, why do you rob banks? And his answer was, because that's where the money is. Well, I think Bob and I, if we want to write stories and books about spies and you want to write sites, well, the center of espionage in the United States have traditionally been in two cities, Washington, D.C. and New York City, going back to the American Revolution and add Philadelphia as the third. So in that order, we have written them. And I would say that New York City certainly with a number of spies there at the United Nations and undercover, it rivals uh, Washington. It's, it would be hard to pick a favorite between the two. Well, the book is exhaustively researched. I've, I've clearly looked at, at all of your books and this one in particular uh, is incredibly researched. You have 233 main entries. You have 380 photographs. So I'm gonna ask you a little easier question. Was it easier to do this book uh, because you've worked together, you and Bob, for so many years, you've been such great partners. Uh, was it easier to put together this book just because of your time spent working these kinds of books together? Bob? Chris, uh, this is a question to me that is similar to one that I faced several times during my career at the CIA, and that was moving and being reassigned and relocating. And over those years, I finally came to the conclusion that moving never got any easier, but I didn't know what to expect each time. Right. And I think that's the case with these books. Uh, no, each one has its individual challenges. Uh, each one takes a, a tremendous uh, amount of effort. Uh, we, uh, we, we're willing, we put that in, uh, they were they were difficult. I don't think they were easier, uh, but we sure knew what to expect, and uh, we kind of knew what problems to anticipate. Is that about right, Keith? Is that how you feel about it? Well, certainly. Uh, I, I would add to it that Bob and I have been working together for almost 20 years, uh, and friends before that, but uh, we've been working on books. We both have an appreciation for historical detail and uh, uh, we've also been aided by Hank Schlesinger, who is our long-term friend and researcher, and he adds immeasurably to the quality of our books by some of the arcane sights and perspective he brings. Uh, he's a New Yorker, a native New Yorker. He knows New York, and as he always reminds us, only a New Yorker would know some of these things, so uh, the combination continues uh, to serve as well. 
So either one of you can answer this question. I'm just curious, did you find out anything unexpected about spying from your foray into New York City? I'll offer a suggestion is, I think, and Bob and I talked, we were amazed at the proliferation of German espionage during World War One, mm -hmm. and how they were both, uh, on one hand, trying to subvert U.S. public attention to keep the U.S. out of the war, but on the other hand, the number of acts of sabotage to destroy the munition pipeline that was essentially keeping England and France fighting in World War One, and the scale of their operations are still astounding. And keep in mind, this took place at a time that we really didn't have a FBI with national powers to serve in a counterintelligence uh, needs and functions. So the U.S. was essentially unprepared for global espionage at that point. Chris, I think a piece that, had, that I hadn't realized was the extent to which influence operations, propaganda, uh, effort, efforts to influence the um, American public's opinion of, of circumstances of, of politics, uh, played such a, such a significant role from the beginning of our country. And we've heard about that a lot in the last three or four years about, quote, foreign influence uh, in American, in affecting American public opinion. Uh, but in fact, uh, one of the things that the New York book really underscored uh, is that uh, that activity uh, began with the revolution. And it's been a factor in uh, every era of American espionage since then to have that underscored in the way that the various entries in the New York book uh, have, have done uh, was something of a revelation to me. And, and I think that's a great point. I think that right now propaganda, disinformation, it's very much in the, in the media. And uh, it's a great reminder that disinformation, misinformation, propaganda campaigns have been around throughout history. So it goes beyond, well beyond the Cold War. So thanks for bringing that up. I'd like to dive a little bit into the American Revolution. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the turtle attack. So Bob, going, going back to you, can you highlight the story that we talk about because it's so relevant to the spy museum? The turtle was the name given to a submersible or at least partial submersible that was built by an American scientist named David Bushnell in the Revolutionary War, in the early part of the Revolutionary War, uh, designed as an attack vehicle, as a clandestine secret clan, uh, attack vehicle on the uh, British warship that was moored in, uh, uh, moored in lower, lower Manhattan. And uh, Bushnell uh, conceived of a, a sphere, a sphere that, sphere that is uh, replicated to the best as we can in the lobby of the, of the spy museum. And uh, the idea would be that uh, powered by a hand crank and a screw propeller, uh, uh, this submersible uh, would, would be pedaled up, if you will, to the 
to the ship, to the warship, and an explosive planted on the hull of the warship and detonated and, and, and sink the warship. Uh, now, uh, there are a couple, a couple of elements of it that I think are, are relevant to intelligence. Uh, one, uh, it was a great engineering feat, and it was a, a successfully uh, completed and built device. Uh, secondly, as a uh, uh, NCO uh, in the Army, I can understand uh, the idea that the scientist is not about to drive that boat in, into the mission. So they found, found a sergeant willing to get inside the, inside the boat and pedal it up uh, to the warship. And uh, thirdly, uh, next, uh, from an intelligence standpoint, they had incomplete intelligence uh, on the uh, British warship because they had expected the warship to be a wooden hulled ship and in fact it had a steel a metal, metal hull on it. So they were unable to drill the hole that was necessary to uh, plant the explosive on, on the ship. Well, the uh, turtle uh, returned to port, uh, mission uh, not, not accomplished, uh, but in fact, we had demonstrated the capability to build a, build a device, a submersible device that potentially could attack an enemy warship. I love that story. I'd, I'd like to shift gears to Francis Tavern, and I'd like to just highlight for Keith and, and you, Bob, that that happens to be my favorite, uh, favorite historical site in New York as it relates to espionage, because it really bridges the Revolutionary War and spying with terrorism. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, Keith. Uh, tell us about the history of Francis Tavern. Still Absolutely. running, by the way. <laughs> it is. It was originally, uh, it, before it was called the Francis Tavern, it was the Queen's Head Tavern. And in mm. 1762, they changed the name and it became somewhat infamous as the meeting place of the Sons of Liberty. So it clearly was aligned with a Kind of the revolutionary cause. Uh, General Washington gave it notoriety because it became his last residence in New York City. And uh, in the dining room in 1783, he gave his final farewell address to his officers. So it, it's, it has a long history. Um, furthermore, the uh, Francis, who was a Jamaican that, that owned the tavern, his daughter Phoebe worked for General Washington as a housekeeper and is credited by being very alert and detecting a one of his bodyguards that was a traitor. And actually she reported a plot that could have resulted in the loss of his life. Uh, I think, in, and most significantly uh, in 1975, the a Puerto Rican independence group, the FALN, uh, planted bombs there that killed four people. So sadly, there was the nexus of terrorism and espionage, uh, but the site is still there. It's certainly worth visiting, and it's a New York landmark. So before we shift to the Civil War, I'd be remiss if I didn't flag the AMC TV show Turn, Washington Spies, because that show has really highlighted just how much espionage played out in New York City and Long Island, in Connecticut for that matter. Talk a little bit about 
the culprit spying and the connection to some of the sites. Could you do that uh, a little bit for us, Bob? Tease it out. Well, I'll start with the culprit spying, saying that this is one of those operations uh, with multiple people, and one really can't understand the operation unless you have a scorecard with the uh, with the people in, involved. The principal organizer of the ring was uh, Benjamin uh, Kalmage, yeah. who uh, was an aide to General Washington. And probably more significantly, uh, he was a friend of, uh, he, was a, he was a friend of Nathan Hale. And so the execution of Nathan Hale made a dramatic impact on uh, Talmage. And uh, as Washington's aide, he was given the authority, the responsibility to form a spy ring uh, based out of New York that would provide Washington with information about the, the British deployments, uh, movements, uh, capabilities in New York at the time, first uh, years of the Revolutionary War, the British occupied New York. So it was a, a principal, would be a principal intelligence target for Washington. Uh, so a, a group of a half a dozen people uh, based uh, both in New York and on Long Island became part of this intelligence ring or, or, uh, that was known as the Culper Ring. Culper actually was not the name of anybody. It was a code name uh, chosen uh, for the name of the, of the ring that included uh, uh, Abraham Woodhull, Robert Townsend, and Caleb Brewster primarily. And uh, the, uh, the concept or the, the operation involved the collection of information uh, about British capabilities in New York by Robert Townsend, who was the owner of a, st a store uh, that the British frequented in New York. Uh, this information was uh, passed to Woodhull, uh, who then took it uh, across the across the water to Long, Long Island, and uh, it was uh, picked up by Brewster and uh, then delivered to Ta Talmadge. Now, all of this information was encrypted or it was produced uh, with secret writing. It was uh, mm -hmm. transmitted in, in secret writing. So then once Talmadge had the information, he had the responsibility for uh, bringing the secret writing uh, into uh, vision so it so it could be read. Now there are uh, any any number of permeations on this. Uh, uh, one is that uh, there was a coding mechanism uh, uh, based on what kind of laundry was being uh, on uh, being hung out to dry by a lady on Long Island that would uh, provide signal information as to when information was to be received or was being uh, was being received. I think that uh, uh, an element of it uh, is is the uh, is the tradecraft and the technology used in the operation. And Keith has I know some comments on that. Uh, I think the the television shows many television shows they take some liberties with some of the technology shown and some of the things they show while interesting didn't happen until years after the revolution. 
But the principal things that they understood probably are the things that intelligence officers are trained today. They understood the, the fundamental necessity of compartmentalization so that by using cover names and never cross-contaminating those or releasing them into parallel groups, they were able to compartmentalize their cells. To this day, some of the individuals still serve in silence. Fundamentally, their basic method of communication was what they called sympathetic stains or invisible inks. And their primary method of, of coding were book codes where they would create a dictionary and essentially mm -hmm. then assign a number to that. And as long as there were only two copies of the dictionary that, uh, you know, the, the word uh, ammunition may be 316 and they had a long alphabetical list and they could communicate effectively. Uh, it isn't a foolproof system, but it ver worked very well. They used dead drops. They had clandestine meeting sites. They understood the, the work of agents and officers. Uh, so they were fundamentally grounded. And General Washington should be credited as America's first great spy master, who he personally directed many of these operations and became a form of asymmetrical warfare that gave us an advantage over the British. And it was really one of the few advantages we had during the Revolutionary War. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, really. And, and you make the point well. And I think at the Spy Museum, we talk a lot about the Culper Network and George Washington's role. Uh, so I, I encourage people to not only walk the sites in New York City, but come to the Spy Museum and, and it, we provide more color. Chris, if I could interject here, this is one of these ep episodes, one of the entries in Spy Sites of New York where there are several uh, actual sites that one can visit in New York as well. Uh, the, uh, the Brewster, the Caleb Brewster farmhouse uh, still exists. Uh, there's a, a marker where the Woodhall home was, the Townsend home. Uh, is Raynham Hall in uh, New York, a uh, historical site. And so in, in terms of one of the spy stories, spy entries uh, in the book, uh, this one is particularly rich with uh, places where you can uh, still see and, you know, if you will, walk in the shoes of these spies. Right, and that includes going to the gravesite of Abraham Woodhull, who would have been Samuel Culper Sr., correct? Yes, uh, Samuel Cul Culper Sr. Uh, all of these uh, members not only had the, uh, the uh, alias names, but they also yeah. had code numbers associated with them. Uh, one of the, Keith mentioned that not all have been identified, and uh, the uh, one who has not been identified is Mystery Agent 335. Uh, Mystery Agent 335 is likely uh, one of the women who uh, was, was part, part of the ring, but if someone wants to, uh, I guess, uh, become a prominent author, uh, doing a little uh, research and identifying that uh, woman would be uh, a great benefit to all intelligence historians and the spy museum. Yeah. Uh, any educated guesses or do we have to wait for the book? 
Well, I think there's uh, no more than speculation. I don't know whether any of the guesses are uh, very, gotcha. very accurate or not. Now, there's also there's also some question about whether that all all of this is true. You know, any of these uh, spy stories uh, over time they get mixed with uh, uh, a lot of myth uh, as well as interpretation, and so sometimes or sometimes always in the absence of hard documentation, there are many speculative elements to it. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So that's a great segue to the civil war because uh, I, I talked a little bit about this with Keith there there was so much fiction written about civil war espionage that I, I really didn't take it that serious because I couldn't find the the literature until the last couple decades there's been some excellent excellent books one comes to mind by a guy by the name of official uh, the, who wrote about Civil War espionage, and there are traces of espionage in in uh, New York City during the Civil War. One in particular got my attention, and that was quote the vast and fiendish plot, and it has something to do with P.T. Barnum. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, Keith. Uh, Keith, please, and then I would like to hear from both of you on just you know what are your favorite sites. Uh, regarding the Civil War, or what do you want to talk about? Uh, because again, I think it's hard to find traces to the Civil War. Much of the, the the work was sensationalized, and it's only been the last, as I said, the few decades that I think that, that serious historians have really dived in on the Civil War. You might not agree with that. I'd love to hear from both. Well, the, the, the vast and fiendish plot was a Confederate operation in 1864 that essentially was in response to General Sherman's destructive march across Georgia and literally he destroyed everything in his path. And so the decision was made was to sow disruption and literally cause a firebomb attack and burn down New York City. And, mm -hmm. uh, and they selected a number of key hotels and including the Barnum's Museum of Americana. They selected and obtained 12 dozen bottles of Greek fire, which was a highly combustible mixture that was very explosive. And the idea was to rent rooms and hotels. If you, if, if New York wasn't the New York we know of late, though there have been a lot of fires most recently there. And in the Revolutionary War, it was so compact without building codes that a conflagration could have been created. Chris, I think, uh, so So that's an interesting New York link. I think one of the things that uh, we did find 
and Keith may want to comment on this, is the Civil War really didn't touch New York like it did Washington and Philadelphia. Right. Uh, New York was too far away. There were no battles, uh, Civil War battles around New York, uh, and in fact, a, a lesser degree of espionage there. I mentioned that one of the New York did get sort of produce a celebrity spy, and uh, the one that I particularly like is Pauline Cushman. Pauline Cushman's spy career can best be described, I think, in the title of her book that she wrote. Pauline Cushman uh, was a well-known actress, and the title of her book is, stay with me on this now, Chris, <laughs> The Life of Pauline Cushman, the celebrated Union spy and scout, comprising her early history, her entry into the secret service of the Army of the Cumberland, an exciting adventure with the rebel chieftains and others while within enemy lines. Together with her capture and sentence to death by General Bragg and final rescue by the Union Army under General Rosecrans. So our next Spy Sites book, we're gonna to try to duplicate uh, the title of Cushman's autobiography. That's fascinating. Actually, I didn't pick up on that. Thanks for sharing that. I wanna transition a little bit to the uh, what Keith alluded to, and that was the first World War and the Germans, saboteurs and some of their involvement in New York City. So Keith, I think you alluded to that or referenced it early on. So what, what would you like to talk about? What favorite sites, interesting sites? Well, one's the magnitude, and I may have mentioned it earlier, but 125 named incidents of espionage that have, are, are sabotage that can be now attributed to German uh, espionage wow. operations, sabotage operations, was the magnitude. Uh, their primary purpose was the disruption of the munitions that were feeding Europe. And the explosion at Black Calm Island was at the time the largest peacetime explosion, I think, in the United States history. So uh, it was a major and uh, explosion mm -hmm. in which debris was blown for miles and miles and miles. Uh, all this because we essentially didn't have a, a national police force such as the FBI in operation at that point with the authority to deal with counterintelligence. And uh, uh, very capable individuals such as Captain Von Rintelen, uh who arrived in 1915 with $500,000 and was given a free way to run, run intelligence operations and sabotage operations, and they were devastatingly effective. Uh, it is fortunate, uh, well, we still to this day don't know some of the losses because they were planting bombs in among the coal and ships going out to sea, and you simply have ships disappearing. So the true story and the magnitude of it is probably only being realized in recent years as, as historians have dug into it. When we talk about terrorism at the International Spy Museum, we talk about anarchists as well. Um, you post 1919, the Red Scare, etc. You can go to Wall Street and see the deadliest terrorist attack on U.S. soil that had happened uh, prior to 1993, the first world 
Trade Center attack and, of course, 9-11. So what would you find if you went to Wall Street? Are there any vestiges of that? Is there any, any pieces of that attack that you can find on Wall Street today? I don't know whether there are any actual pieces of the shrapnel or the explosive devices left. I, uh, New York uh, does a pretty good job of cleaning their streets. So I, th I think probably in the 100 years since they've, uh, they've picked up uh, all the artifacts or the souvenirs. My guess is that that's what you're searching for here, Chris, right, is another artifact for the spy museum, like a piece of the shrapnel from the bombing. No, I was referencing actually there's, it, it seems that uh, there's scarring from the actual bomb. Indeed, indeed there, there is scarring uh, on several buildings uh, on Wall Street from those 19, 19, 19, uh, 20 bombings. Uh, uh, Keith and I were in New York uh, right before the uh, city closed down because of the COVID virus and uh, w walk that street and it's uh, uh, fascinating to uh, to think that how uh, uh, how in a hundred years uh, in some ways uh, life has changed uh, to the point that we don't recognize it and then in other ways the mark of radicalism or, or disruption or or terrorists uh, whatever term you want to use with it uh, are uh, on Wall Street today, and I uh, suspect they're on several other streets in New, in New York as we speak from the, mm -hmm. uh, the recent uh, act actions of people who would rather destroy than, than build. The uh, anarchists of the 1920, uh, 1919, 1920, I think were uh, uh, feared, uh, Feared broadly across the United States, and the uh, the Attorney General uh, at the time made a, a specific effort to uh, root out the the radicals or, or find the radicals, which were uh, bombing not only New York but a number of other cities uh, right. around the around the United States. So here we're coming off of the the Great World War, and immediately the country is plunged into both a crisis of uh, virus flu, uh, Spanish flu, as well as the th threat of anarchists. Now, I, I don't know, uh, Chris, in terms of if uh, this is an opportunity to make uh, another point about World War II, uh, or if you'd like to move on to another subject, that's fine as well. Well, before we go to World yeah, War before uh, no worries. Uh, no, go go ahead, Bob. And then we'll. Uh, then I want to dive into the ice axe and the plot and the and Trotsky, which I know Keith loves to talk about uh, uh, appropriately because of his deep experience with that story. But the links to to New York. But go ahead and finish yeah, up on. Just let me World finish up then on uh, World World War One because uh, to me, in in some ways, this is the most fascinating part of the book uh, because World War one seemed to be the uh, turning point for espionage yep. in uh, America. Uh, th this kind of ushered in the uh, modern age of espionage. And uh, the elements that were indicative of that was uh, that foreign intelligence operations, that is coordinated 
foreign intelligence operations came to America by two countries, uh, the Germans and the, uh, the British. Uh, and they ran operations, significant operations, well-funded operations of collection, of sabotage and influence across America, not, uh, not just isolated in any one city. There was, as Keith mentioned, the realization that we didn't have a domestic counterintelligence service and uh, thus the slow emergence of the FBI. There was also uh, the development of cryptology or uh, really code breaking. Uh, 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 first uh, in, in Washington and then that activity moved to uh, New, York, uh, New York subsequently. The uh, technology of the time uh, became dramatically significant for intelligence. Uh, one, of the one of the major developments was the ability to put induction taps on mm -hmm. the cables, on the transatlantic cables that were carrying communications from uh, Europe to the United States. And then uh, finally, I, I think it's fascinating that the British uh, developed uh, an operation against the German ambassador uh, in Washington uh, in, in which the British got a hold of some images, uh, pictures, photographs of the ambassador with a couple of bathing beauties who were not his, his wife. And uh, they, they distributed these broadly to the American press. And to my knowledge, this is one of the first examples of using images to shape public perception. Uh, previously, you had had, uh, we had cartoonists, we had drawings, but now you have the magic of photography. And not only can you take photographs, you can crop photographs and print them. And then you can suggest what these photographs might mean, even if that's not the truth. So images used out of, out of context appeared first during the, this time of the First World War. Just a few, few items, I think, that are sort of set the stage for modern espionage. I, and I think, as I recall, you'll find the picture of, uh, of those women with the ambassador in spy sites in New York City. So uh, Keith, can you talk a little bit about the ice axe and the plot to kill Trotsky? What's the convergence in New York City? And, and what will we find? Well, when Leon Trotsky escaped from Norway and fled to Mexico City, on one hand, he believed he was leaving the den of espionage in Europe. In actuality, he was far closer to the most subverted administration and penetrated administration in US history, which was the Roosevelt administration. And he was much closer to sophisticated Russian intelligence operations under the NKVD in New York City. And so the plots to kill Trotsky were essentially planned from New York City. And the, the, the essentially two plots, the May 24th raid in which uh, Mexican muralist David Alferos Kyrgios led a group of Mexican bandits to storm Trotsky's compound. Uh, the individual that let them in the door, Robert Sheldon Hart, was the son of a wealthy New York City financier who had been recruited in New York by the legendary illegal Russian illegal Grigolevich, and he opened the door and let him in. But when that operation failed, 
On May 29th, the ultimate assassin, Ramon Mercader, using the false papers as Frank Jackson, traveled to New York City with his mother, Caradad, who operated under the very clever codename Mother, and they met with Geik Ovakimian, who was the chief Soviet illegal in the U.S. at the Hotel Pierpont, and they laid out the final plans that would assassinate uh, Leon Trotsky on August the 20th, 1940. They gave him the money to do the final financing. They proposed an operation to him with three weapons, which would be a a pistol, a uh, a a a pistol, an iron rod, and a knife, and he ultimately selected an ice axe. But the whole key to his approach to the entourage was how do you penetrate this small, close group of American bodyguards, by the way, which were recruited through the Socialist Workers' Party headquartered in New York City and financed by the Socialist Workers' Party. But it was a lonely socialite, uh, a, a young girl by the name of Sylvia Ageloff, graduate of Columbia University, family, her father was a realtor, and ultimately she was set up to be seduced by the assassin. He established a common law marriage with her. And then when he moved to Mexico City under the guise of setting up an import-export business, she followed and she became the bridge that introduced him eventually into the Trotsky household. And based on her establishing his bona fides, on the 20th of May, he was allowed to be alone with Trotsky and as an ice climber, he drove a shortened ice climbing axe two and three quarter inches into Trotsky's skull and, and killed him. So uh, without New York, this would not have been possible. New York was also the headquarters for an operation called Operation Gnome, which successfully, or tried unsuccessfully, was to try to spring Mercader from prison, and that was unsuccessful. So, um, it's hard to separate the assassination from all of the work that took place in New York City. It was a sophisticated plot, and uh, you articulate it very well. You know the story, and we have the ice axe at the International Spy Museum. So please come and visit us and, and take a look at the actual ice axe that, that you can find here in DC. Secret sites of the secret bomb. Uh, what will we learn about the Manhattan Project in Manhattan, right, Bob? Chris, uh, there were several kind of amazing things to me when we, as we developed this book. I had never really thought about the Manhattan Project, uh, mm -hmm. although it had the name Manhattan associated with it, right. uh, as, as having the kind of uh, link. Really, it's the, the birthplace of the atomic bomb is not Los Alamos, and it's, it's not Sandy, and it's not Oak Ridge. It's really New York. And I, I just had never thought previously about New York being the, uh, the home, uh, the, the birthplace of the atomic bomb. But, but in fact, the Manhattan Project headquarters uh, was at 27 Broadway, and uh, this uh, was only one of at least eight other major locations in New York where research and engineering on the, on the device, on, on, on nuclear weapon 
weaponry and the physics associated with it, the engineering required, uh, were, were occurring. Now, then, the uh, as the project developed, it was then spread out uh, across the United States, uh, many locations where there was uh, active, where there was water, where, where there's rivers to, that were necessary to uh, su support the actual uh, development of, of, the, of the material. So uh, New, York, New York has a central part in it, uh, both from the standpoint of the development of the atomic bomb and then from the loss of that secret of the atomic bomb. And uh, we uh, point out uh, through uh, various places in the, in the book, uh, people like Harry Gold, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, Martin Sobel, right. uh, Klaus Fuchs, uh, Robert I'm, I'm Oppenheimer, others who were New Yorkers uh, who were involved in one way or another in the loss of that technology, that atomic technology to the Soviet Union. Now, Keith and I have talked about this uh, a little bit, and uh, he has a couple of things to add. Well, of all the interesting sites, uh, the diversification across the U.S. of such an important project is amazing. But many New Yorkers or readers of the book may pass the Buddhist church on Riverside Drive and fail to notice the small statue standing silent, of course, of the founder of 13th century Buddhism. And the statue was present in Hiroshima when the bomb fell and it was ultimately removed and stands sentinel in New York City. And it's perhaps a link to the bombing that uh, people pass by each day without ever giving it a second thought. Well, I did not know that, and I didn't pick that up. And I've read through the book uh, two or three times, so it gives you a sense of, of how dense it is with, with information and uh, gems about the Cold War and espionage generally. So I wanna talk a little bit about Rudolf Abel and uh, his dead drop site in Tyrone Park. My question is, will I be able to find that actual dead drop site? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it's uh, Rudolf Abel was of course the chief Russian illegal in the US. After World War II, he took over the volunteer network which had been the network that penetrated the uh, atomic bomb program and stole the secrets. And so he was charged with the remnants of it. And as every good Soviet intelligence officer, he had a plethora of sites, including the one on Tyrone Park. Yes, you can find it, but you got to look carefully because some of the uh, some of the elements of it has changed. But we do have some very good photos that you can use. And we've listed a number of both signal sites and drop sites that uh, that, that he used. Uh, uh, one interesting story, because uh, Abel was perhaps, uh, his real name was, was Willie Fisher, was the most technically sophisticated intelligence officer perhaps ever sent to the United States. He could make his own microdots, a skilled radio operator. But when I spoke with one of his instructors that was, uh, were still alive in the early 90s in Moscow, and I'm uh, Colonel Nikolai, uh, the, the head of their clandestine photography department. And I asked him, please tell me the names of his students that I would remember or I would know. And he, through the interpreter, said, well, I could give you the names of many of my students, 
you would recognize because they became very famous because they did not pay attention and they got caught. Hmm. Uh, the names I could give you of my students I'm most proud of, the ones that didn't get caught, of course I will not. Hmm. But Fisher and uh, Abel made one fatal mistake in that he revealed the location of his residence to his deputy, a man by the name of Rhino Hehanan, who eventually defected. And ultimately, after six weeks of driving through Brooklyn, they were able to pinpoint the hotel where he lived, and that ultimately led to Abel's arrest. So it was a significant, significant case. And um, uh, but once he was eventually swapped for Francis Gary Powers, and that was a story that you read, you saw in the movie Bridge of Spies. So he was a non-official cover officer, Abel. There's another non-official cover officer you talk about, and that's Jack Barsky. And I love the fact that there are five or six pages of his communications plan. Um, first, I wanted to ask you, did Jack Barsky uh, help you find those sites? Because we have a relationship with him at the Spy Museum. So talk a little bit about Jack's work and his communications plan and whether he helped you or not. Jack was a great help. Uh, he is a friend of the museum and a historian. He's written a very important book and he gave us full cooperation. So we, through a series of long interviews, were able to, from the literature in his book and his own memories, we were able to recover many of his communication sites. He was using a shortwave radio to see receive one-way coded broadcasts, plus he was reporting using a Canon 35 millimeter camera and just photographing his reports and then dead dropping them. Uh, one that is most interesting to me was a site called Woody in Inwood Park mm. that we believe the what he left may still never have been recovered. It may still be there inside that rotted tree if someone ever chose to dig down in it. So. Uh, the essence of espionage isn't high technology at times. It's still the fundamentals of signal sites, dead drops, clandestine meetings, and regular communication. And uh, Jack is going to be a treasure, and I believe is soon going to be doing a uh, an evening presentation at the Spine Museum uh, very, very soon. I look forward to that. Uh, yeah, it is fascinating to walk that ground. Bob, anything on Jack? How long have you known Jack? Uh, Chris, uh, my uh, knowledge of Jack and uh, is uh, really through Keith, and so I don't I don't have the same kind of additional insight uh, to uh, mm -hmm. Jack and his work that Keith has. How about Anna Chapman? Who knows that case? <laughs> it's it's this probably going to be. <laughs> with the Russian illegals, though I've never met Anna. Uh, Anna was a, a breed of what we call the new illegals, meaning yeah. that she was coming out in true name. And the, the reason was that the, the Russians have found out it is more difficult to protect digital cover in the world of the internet than it is to simply send someone out in true name and understand that there's no way for us to truly establish their bona fides and do research back in Moscow. And she came here in early 2010, 
was operational for uh, up and through through June of that year for six months. Uh, she lived at 20 Exchange Place. She had uh, meetings, uh, had a well, Covcom sent signals every other Wednesday. Um, Covcom. Covert communication. And she was there to work her way, infiltrate the social ladder, make contacts, and kind of work her way to the top. Um, Alan Kohler, the senior senior FBI case agent at the time, said that within six months, she would have been the most dangerous Russian spy in America because her ability to basically get into any man's office and get an audience with him and be able to make a pitch for, she was under cover of creating a apartment finders website, but she used her appearance to open doors and was very successful at it. Well, I've got to say, we covered a lot of ground, and I am actually shocked that we're on time uh, because we covered from the American Revolution to really the new threats that exist today, ending with a discussion on Anna Chapman. Is there anything else, Bob? I'll turn to you first. Is there anything you want to cover that we didn't talk about today? In terms of the New York book and drawing a little bit of contrast with our spy sites of Washington. Uh, Washington's book was heavily focused uh, around uh, people involved in the government, uh, in uh, the diplomatic service, uh, and uh, targets uh, on the United States, various United States government agencies. Uh, New York uh, emphasizes that spies are drawn from all walks of life. We have actors and academicians and technicians and machinists and the underworld. We have fashion models. Uh, we, ha we have writers. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. And these are all supported in New York uh, primarily through commercial covers, uh, stores like uh, Townsend Head or uh, the record a recording studio that the uh, Russian uh, intelligence officer Boris Mor uh, Morris ran. Uh, Valerie Dickinson, who ran a doll shop and spied for the Japanese, uh, Chapman with her real estate business. So uh, those, those kinds of uh, fascinating differences, I think uh, also underscore the pervasiveness of espionage and the creativity of intelligence services. Uh, so New York just adds a very rich dimension to our understanding of uh, foreign as, as well as uh, American intelligence operations. Keith, final thoughts? Well, it's uh, certainly I echo Bob's comments. Uh, we ended on Anna Chapman, and I would say that is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, at the museum, we have uh, one of our most interesting displays, as I believe the, the huge display we have on the handcuffs that arrested Anna Chapman and the 10 Russian illegals. Uh, the case was the impetus for the creation of the Emmy award-winning and extremely popular series, The Americans. So any of the millions of American fans that want to know more about the real case, I hope they'll come and visit the museum when we reopen and take a look at some of the, the artifacts that Anna used and learn more about the real stories. As Bob and I often say, truth is really stranger than fiction and when you see the truth stories the way we present them in the movies uh in the museum they certainly rival and surpass 
the fiction you often see on television and in movies. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute privilege and a treat spending this afternoon with you talking about your book. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our listeners and for your dedication to educating the public on espionage. I'm extremely grateful. I'm certainly a, a beneficiary of all of your hard work and all of your research on espionage. This book is an indispensable guide to New York's clandestine and subterranean history. Please check out the book, the book Spy Sites of New York City. Thank you. Have a great Thank day. Thank you very much. All Thank right. you. Good day. Uh, the International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.